You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. Well, something you should know about youth pastors is we are suckers for a good object lesson. Uh, We love an object lesson, something that the audience can kind of latch onto, something that hopefully will stick in their minds, uh, just kind of like an interactive way to tell a story. As a youth pastor, I'm always looking for these kind of things with our students. And this last Wednesday night, uh, I attempted one. Sometimes they go over better than other times. Uh, Last Wednesday night, we were telling the story of when Jesus is on trial with Pilate. And, And Pilate, even though he knows Jesus is innocent, he condemns him to death and then he symbolically washes his hands trying to say like, hey, I'm not guilty of this crime that I just committed. And we tried to talk about this idea of how there is nothing that can really wash away our sins except for the blood of Jesus. And I tried to demonstrate this by offering for the students a moment where they could make a mark on their hands to represent a sin or something they maybe struggle with. And then we're gonna have a time where we wash that away with a little solution I put together of rubbing alcohol and red food coloring. So it kind of looked like the blood of Jesus. We had a communion time. I worked really hard on this, spent a lot of time. And uh, the day I'm setting it up, I tested it out. You gotta get the solution just right or you're hand is like left permanently red, which you don't want that. Or if you don't have enough, the marker doesn't come off. Uh, So I'd gotten all this set up. I tried it out with a Sharpie, but then I realized I didn't have enough Sharpies for every student on Wednesday night. And so I borrowed from Raquel some magic markers. And I failed to test the magic markers, but I thought these are magic markers. They're made to be washable, right? Like they'll surely come off. You know, they come off with water. There'll be no problem. And so then like I do the whole thing. We dim the lights. We set the mood. The kids kind of make their way through this sort of like different stations. They get to the hallway where there's a station set up where they'd wash off the marks that they put on their hands. And I'm watching as this goes. I'm sort of praying in the back of the room. And one of my leaders comes in and she's like, it's not washing off. And I'm like, what? And I realized that the magic marker, as opposed to the Sharpie, just started to really smear when you took the blood of Christ to it. And so those sins were just too strong for the blood of Christ that I'd come up with. So then afterwards, I had to just ask the students like, hey, raise your hand if you had a magic marker. And they raised their hands and those hands were all black and the sins just did not come off of them. And I'd be like, trust me though, like your real sins, they'll come off. Like Jesus's blood is stronger than this. I love a good object lesson, hopefully even in spite of that little bit of a disaster, that concept will stick with students, that we can't wash away our own sins. But I love a good object lesson, and here's what I think is cool, is that as we look in the Bible, we are going to see that God also loves a good object lesson. And he set up in the Old Testament for all of Israel to follow for years and years an object lesson of the feasts. There's several feasts that we're going to look at and read about in the Old Testament today. And this kind of starts a new series that's going to be like nothing we've ever done at Discovery, which is like every series, right? We never do the same thing. But this series is not going to be every Sunday. It's going to be periodically throughout the year. We're going to focus on these feasts that God set up for Israel Israel to follow. And we're going to try and do this with the calendar in which they would fall. And so this week, if you know your Jewish calendar, which I don't expect you to, this week, on I think it's Saturday, we'll kick off the Passover celebration. And so today, we're going to talk about the spring feasts of Israel. And how am I going to demonstrate to you God's great object lesson, his really creative way of communicating something? We've got a chart. 
Excited, right? Some of you hear a chart, you're like, what? Spreadsheet? Does this work? And then others of you, you're like, what? Worship and organization coming together? I've never been so alive. So if you look on the back of your compass, you'll see on the bottom of it, we have this chart that we're going to follow along with on the side screens as we go through these feasts, hopefully to just help you keep them organized in your brain. And so I want to look at Leviticus chapter 23, which is the first place where these feasts come up. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. We'll have it on the screens for you. But this marks a pivotal moment in Israel's history. If you look at the story, they have just escaped from Egypt, a place where they spent, as a nation of people, growing over 400 years. And the majority of that time was in forced servitude. They were slaves in Egypt. But then God strikes Egypt down with a series of plagues. They escape Egypt during the Passover. They cross through the sea. And then they get to this giant mountain in the desert, Mount Sinai. And there, God's presence settles on this mountain, and there's lightning, and there's smoke, and there's fire. And he says, nobody come, nobody approach the mountain. Only Moses can come up, or you will die, because my presence is on this mountain. And there on that mountain, God gives the Israelites the the commandments, the law. And with that, he sets up these feasts that we're going to read about in Leviticus 23. So here we go, chapter, or verse 5, it says this. He says, these appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them in the first month on the 14th day of the month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat, you shall not eat unleavened bread, you shall eat unleavened bread. So right there we start to fill out our chart, okay? Our first column, we're going to have our feasts. And we're going to look at these first two feasts, the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because they sort of go hand in hand. In fact, in the Jewish brain, like all of Passover kind of marked like this sign, like unleavened bread was a part of Passover. But God gives instructions about that at these two feasts, these two kind of parties, which is just cool, right? Like as God wants to remind the Israelites what he's done for them, he gives them parties. Our God likes to party. I think we don't emphasize that enough in church But he gives more details about this in the book of Exodus, the next book over, Exodus 12. God says this to Moses to tell the Israelites, he says, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household's too small for the lamb, then his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each person can eat and shall make your your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. This is God telling Moses what Israel needs to do to escape Egypt. They're coming up on that 10th plague. He's cast like nine other plagues on Pharaoh, and Pharaoh refused to release the Israelites And then this 10th plague is going to be the the firstborn of every person. God's going to kill, take the life of the firstborn of every family in Egypt, unless the blood of the lamb is on their doorposts. And he, he expands on this in verse 12. He says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So the feast of Passover originated right here. It originated in the 10th plague. 
So there was gonna be this great plague and God said, to remember this, to remember how I spared you during the 10th plague, I want you to forever, every year, celebrate a Passover feast. And what you'll do in that Passover feast is you're going to take a lamb from your flock, right? Take a lamb, the firstborn lamb, and it's to have no blemish, no spot, select it out of your flock on the 10th day of the month. And then on the 14th day of the month, you're to sacrifice it. So they were to take this lamb, which for us, we're just saying like, ah, oh, lamb, like, you know, no big deal. But for them, this was a costly item. Like this one for me, not costly at all. I just stole it out of my kid's bedroom, right? Like totally free lamb for me. But for them, it was a costly lamb. And he says, you take it, take it out of the flock, and then for four days, from the 10th to the 14th, they're to have it out of the flock and sort of like test it and analyze and make sure like, oh, is there really no spot, no blemish? And then on the 10th day, they were to take this lamb, and they were to sacrifice this lamb at sundown, right? And then they would take the blood, oh, the blood of the lamb, and take that blood and paint it over their doorpost, Right? So that on the sides of the door, there would be blood. On the, on the top of the door, there would be blood. And this would be a sign for the people of Israel, for God to see, these are my people. And then when it came time for him to take the lives in that area, he would pass over the ones where he saw the blood of the lamb on the door. So then when they get to Sinai, God says, I want you to remember that moment. And here's how I want you to remember it. I want you to do this every year, just as you did it on this night. I want you to take a lamb for four days, analyze the lamb, and then sacrifice that lamb on the 14th and have a Passover meal. And so that's how Passover originated. And then the next day would be the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They had to leave Egypt in a hurry. So God said, hey, don't make bread with leaven in it. You don't have time for that bread to rise. Just make some unleavened bread. Take that with you and run out of there. And so he's trying to say, hey, remember this exodus. That's where the feast of the unleavened bread originated, was the exodus. And he's saying, you have to leave quickly. And so on this day, like whenever you celebrate this feast in the future, for that week, I don't want you to have any leaven in your house. Go gather all the leaven, get it out of your house for that entire week to remind you of this exodus. And then as time went on, the Israelites began to apply more and more ideas to this. And so the leaven, if you look in the New Testament, began to represent like sin, Jesus would often talk about the leaven. It would, it would represent sin. The leaven was this idea of the old. And so they are leaving Egypt when they removed the leaven out of their house. It's like they're removing the old out of their lives. So remember that God gave them a new life when they left Egypt. And so that's where we see these first two feasts of Passover and unleavened bread. We see how they originated. We see how they were celebrated. Then we get to the next feast, which is the feast of first fruits. And here's what God tells him about this in Leviticus 23, verse 9 through 11. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel, saying to them, when you come into the land that I give you, that be the promised land, and you reap its harvest, you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And so here we have the origination of the feast of the first fruits. It's there in Sinai looking forward to the promise, saying God is saying, one day you're going to get there, and one day you're going to have a harvest, and when that first harvest is reaped, it'll be in the springtime, it'd be their barley harvest. I want you to take a little bit of the first of that barley that you harvest and bring it to me, and it'll be a wave offering to the Lord. So bring this to me, and this was to take place on the Sabbath after Passover. So you have Passover, a week of unleavened bread, and then somewhere in there will be the next Sabbath, and that will be the Feast of the first fruits. So it was supposed to be the celebration of the first harvest that God gave them. 
So there's an idea as they're in the wilderness making their way to the promised land that, hey, we're looking forward to this promised provision of God. And then for every year after, as they're in the promised land, they're remembering how God made a promise to them. And so they bring a little bit of what God has given them back to offer to God. You guys still with me? All right, Feast of Weeks. This is our next feast. We got a bunch right here. It's a lot, I know. Feast of Weeks, Leviticus 23, 15. Then God says, you shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath. So we've gone from Passover, the week after Passover, the Sabbath after Passover. Now seven full weeks from that Passover day. From the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. So this would turn into be more their wheat harvest. So you got the barley harvest would kind of come up in the spring and then more in the summer, 50 days later, would be the wheat harvest. And so what they realized in this too is God established this feast for them. It took about 50 days for Israel to get from Egypt to Sinai. So as they began celebrating this feast, they began recognizing this time when God visited them at the mountain of Sinai. When God's presence came down on this mountain in smoke and in fire, and there he gave them the law. So the Feast of Weeks was not only a recognition of God's promise, but a recognition of God giving them the law. Not only has he provided for them what they need, but he's provided them wisdom to live by. And so they would celebrate that feast, the Feast of Weeks, by bringing another offering to God. And so there's our feast kind of laid out. And I want to point out just one thing in the Feast of Weeks, Leviticus 23, verse 22. This is the first of the feasts that we read about where God has a provision, has kind of like an extra thought added onto it for people that are not in Israel. It says in that verse, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the, to the, your field right up to the edges, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I'm the Lord your God. He's saying, as you're doing this harvest and you're thinking about bringing this offering, don't harvest everything. Leave a little bit for the poor among you, but then also the sojourner outside of you, the immigrant who might be coming to your nation for safety or traveling for other regions. I want you to remember them. And this is the first, and as far as I can tell, the only feast that really has that sort of provision for people outside of Israel. So as we move along with this, you guys still with me? You got all your feasts now? Okay, you got your charts? Everybody up to date? There's going to be a test later on. As we move with this, we kind of have to jump and imagine Israel celebrating these feasts every year. When they first get in the the promised land, their first harvest, what an exciting time that would have been to bring that offering to God and say, man, we were wandering in the wilderness for a generation, but now we have our own land and our own harvest God provided for us. To, To go back to that moment, to tell your kids, hey, why did we just kill this lamb? Well, because years ago, your your grandfather, your grandmother, our great, great, great grandparents going all the way back, they were delivered from Egypt and the blood of the lamb was a sign for them. And so we recognize this every year. And so thousands of years pass by and the Israelites celebrate this feast. And we saw even with like Hezekiah, there's times when they got away from the feast and then good kings like Hezekiah brought the feasts back. But if you fast forward all the way to the New Testament, The idea was that for years and years, Israel would have annually recognized these things that God had done in them. They would remember these promises by these actions. Then we get a guy named John the Baptist who comes on the scene and he's baptizing people. He's telling them to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And one day in John 1, 29, as he's baptizing, a guy named Jesus walks down the road And it says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
Now, when we hear lamb, we think of like, lamb, right? When a Jewish person in those days would have heard lamb, they would have thought of the Passover. They would have thought of the, the sacrifices that they made. And so here now, John the Baptist begins to unite this idea of the lamb with Jesus, the lamb of God. This is God's lamb that has been selected. And we begin to see in all of this stuff the realization of these feasts. So we've had our origination, our celebration. In Jesus, they are fulfilled. And we begin to see the realization that all along God was doing something. They weren't even aware of all God was doing, but he had been setting them up to see that his promise when the Messiah was coming, who would be the ultimate fulfillment of all of these feasts. And we see this happen as Jesus comes on the scene. So if you look in John chapter 12, verse one, it says this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. We skip down a few verses and it says, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. The large crowd that had come to the feast was the feast of Passover, and they hear that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. We're given some dates here. And usually the authors, they don't say, like they might say like, oh, it was evening time or morning time, but they don't usually mark a day. But here we are told, in the first verse, it's six days before Passover. And then the next day, Jesus enters into Jerusalem. So that marks it out that Jesus was entering into Jerusalem on the 10th day of the month, the day when the Israelites were to be selecting their lambs and taking them out of the flock. That's when Jesus came into Jerusalem. We now call that day, we celebrate it in church as Palm Sunday, which would be today, the Sunday before Easter. And we mark how Jesus rode into Jerusalem like a conquering king. He comes in, but a peaceful king on a donkey. And people are waving palm branches but for the Israelites, as they're celebrating this day, they've picked a lamb. And for the next four days, moving up to Passover, they're going to analyze this lamb and make sure it's free of blemish or spot. They're going to test it. And as we watch the next few days of Jesus' life, this happens to him, the lamb of God. As the Pharisees grill him on his theology, as they try and accuse him of different things, as they try and watch him and see that this guy's going to mess up. Is he, is he sinful? Is he of God or is he of man? But they will find that Jesus is free of sin. Just as 1 Peter 2.22 points out, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus was the spotless lamb. And then that, that week, Jesus himself would celebrate the Passover feast that God had set up for them to remember leaving Egypt. But Jesus begins using language that applies that moment to himself. And here's what he says in Luke twenty two twenty, He takes this cup and he passes it around. He said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant, the new promise in my blood. Not the blood of a lamb, but in Jesus's blood. Jesus himself begins to take the language of the feasts and applies it to himself. He says, this is blood as a new promise. My blood as a new promise for you. The Passover, that's the old promise. I've got something new happening. And then later he's arrested. He's put on a corrupt trial. He's handed over to the Roman official Pilate where Pilate condemns him to death. And not once does he resist. This guy who walked on water, he could have easily walked out of the room when he's on trial. This guy who had done so many miracles, he could have gotten out if he wanted to. 
but it said he doesn't resist. And Isaiah points this out in Isaiah 53. He says, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And we see Jesus do that. The firstborn lamb of God without a blemish, without a spot, is then nailed to the cross. The man who knew no sin then dies. And Mark 15, verse 34, points out what time of day this happened. He says, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Again, we're not usually given the times, but here Mark points out that it is at the ninth hour. The ninth hour of Passover was the moment when they slaughtered the Passover lamb. And Jesus, the lamb of God, died in that moment. Just feet away, just another side of town, the Passover lamb itself was being slaughtered. Meanwhile, on a cross, Jesus, the lamb of God, was being slaughtered. This lamb was for the sins of the Israelites long ago, but now we have a new lamb that dies for the sins of humanity. God fulfilled these feasts. They're realized in Jesus. We see the Passover feast is realized on the cross. That now it's not just something that's a distant memory that had to do with that nation or those people. This is something that has to do with me, that I have a sacrificial lamb. The next day is the feast of the unleavened bread. So while the Israelites are are trying to remove all the leaven from their house, Jesus' body is taken from a cross and it's put in a tomb. They're recognizing the old, the way that they had an old life and they were able to leave Egypt. They're removing the representation of sin from their lives while Jesus' body, which removes sin from our world, is placed in a tomb. And we see in that the idea of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are really as you really are unleavened, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now we see the feast of the unleavened bread the next day is realized in the tomb, that the old has gone, that new is coming. After three days and three nights in the grave, it says now on the first day of the week, again, we don't usually get those markings, but we're told that Mary Magdalene came to take the tomb, came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. The first day of the week is the Sabbath. This is the Sabbath following the Passover. The Sabbath following the Passover is the feast of the first fruits. We now see the first fruits of a new harvest coming up as Jesus himself is resurrected. A new thing is happening. There was a promise that now is realized. First Corinthians tells us, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those, that's you and me, who have fallen asleep. He's the first of us to be resurrected. And it happened again on this day of a feast that God established thousands of years ago. Jesus realizes the feast of the first fruits in the resurrection. So we've got the realization of Passover and the cross. We've got the realization of unleavened bread in the tomb. And now the realization of the first fruits in the resurrection. Then Jesus spends probably 40-ish days or so with his disciples before he ascends up into heaven And then we hear that 50 days later, the disciples are gathered together in an upper room and it says, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house they were sitting in and divided tongues as a fire appeared over them, resting on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 50 days after Passover is the Feast of Weeks or as it's called in the New Testament, the Pentecost. 
The feast in which the Israelites recognized God's presence coming on the mountain of Sinai, God coming to give them their law so that they could live in a relationship with him as a nation. Now we see the disciples celebrating that in a new way as God's presence came to them individually. The Israelites couldn't approach the mountain because God's presence was there, but now we can approach God's presence. We can be with him because of the resurrection and the death of Jesus Christ. Now God's presence has come to indwell in his people. And so we see the realization of the Feast of Weeks at that moment of Pentecost, where God's spirit comes to indwell his people. So here's the last question we have to ask as we filled out this much, is what does all of this have to do with me? I mean, it's fascinating, right? Like, I've been super caught up in this this week, but we have to ask the question, like, well, that's cool, that's great trivia, like, but if I'm not going on, like, Bible Jeopardy, what does it have to do with me? Because I think God was up to more than just trying to provide an object lesson for the Israelites. I think he was also communicating with us. And so we have to put to this the application, which conveniently rhymes with all the others, right? Anybody else excited about that? Just me, organization, celebration, realization. Now, application, and if we're lucky, each one of these might start with the same letter. I don't know. We can just wait and see. So here we have. We have Passover, realize in the cross. Passover, which was to remind them of the way that God delivered them from slavery. Now we know that we too are delivered from the slavery of sin and death. That we, because of Jesus' death on the cross, him being the sacrificial lamb for us, we can have peace. Your life, my life, not just the Israelites' life, but humanity, we are offered peace because Jesus died to sin, because Jesus conquered death. We are allowed God's wrath to pass over our sin so that we don't have to die for it. And we're freed, we are delivered from the slavery of death. And now we can have peace. That's the realization, the application for us. First Peter, he breaks it down this way. He says, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. Because of Jesus' death, you and I, today, we can have peace. Then we look at the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and we realize that Jesus, as he died, as his body was put in the grave, he's put in the grave in our place, right? He's made a payment for our sins. As the Israelites removed the old, saying, man, the old is gone, sin is gone, We can do the same because Jesus paid our debt to sin, which Colossians breaks us down. Colossians 2.13 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Because of the cross, because of Jesus's death, We can have payment for our sins. Not only do we have peace, we don't have to worry about death anymore, but our debt is paid for because Jesus died on our behalf. Next, we see that we also have a provision. Not only do we have a payment, not only do we have peace, but God has provided for us. And that because Jesus rose again, we too can rise again. That we don't just have a harvest, an earthly harvest, but we have a heavenly harvest, a life in heaven for eternity that we get to live with our Father. The Israelites wandering in the wilderness looked forward to that day of provision when they entered the promised land, and that's what they celebrated on the Feast of first fruits. We look forward to the day when we get our promised land of eternity. And the Bible breaks it down this way. Peter says in 2 Peter, for this way, 
There will be richly provided for you an inheritance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have peace because Jesus made a payment for us. And that peace, that payment leads to our provision of life after death because of Jesus' sacrifice. And last of all, we see that just like the disciples received on that day of Pentecost, on the day of the Feast of Weeks, we receive God's presence. Because now our sin is gone, the old is gone. Now our creator who made us can come and not only dwell with us, but within us. And we're told this in second, or I'm sorry, in Matthew 28, as Jesus ascends to heaven, the last thing he says to his disciples, he says, hey, go therefore into all the world, tell people about me, baptize in my name, tell people about me, bring more people into our family. Remember how that first feast, the, the feast of weeks, there was that first provision for people that were not Israelites, for the, the poor and the sojourner, the immigrant. That's now us, people who may not be of Jewish descent, but we too can have God's presence. And so as Jesus went up into heaven, he said, and behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. We have God's presence, a tool for us today to help us through our struggles, but a tool to help us bring more people into the promises of God to help more people see that we have a creator who has been at work for thousands upon thousands of years so that we could be in a relationship with him. Why did God go to all that trouble? Why did God go to the trouble of freeing Israel and setting up these feasts, sending his only son to die? He did all of that for you and for me so that we could have a relationship with him, so that we could have peace so that our sin could be paid, so that we could be provided with a new life now and a new life later, and so that we could have the presence of God today. And so this morning, we are going to together take communion, which calls all the way back to that Passover lamb, when God passed over those whose, whose doors had been marked the blood of the sacrificial lamb. But more than that, we remember Jesus, the realization of that feast who gathering with his disciples before he would be sacrificed for us, he said, this is the blood of my new covenant. And the next day we see like a lamb led to slaughter, he was nailed to the cross, his body broken, his blood poured out. And we are to celebrate this feast together in remembrance of him. We've been given a new promise, a new feast, the feast of communion. And so this morning, we're going to do that together at the stations around the room. You'll find some bread. We're going old school back to the bread. And there's some juice there. You can dip the bread and the juice. We ask that you not like dip your whole fist. You know, like we've been through COVID. We're a little aware of that stuff. If you're gluten-free or just don't want to dip the bread, there's also the little old like ones we've been doing, a little packet. But we do this together in recognition that we have peace because Jesus provided a payment for us that we have provision of new life and that we have God's presence. So I wanna invite you to that table this morning. If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, to do this with one another, recognizing what he has done for us so that we could be with him. Let me pray. God, as we come together on this Palm Sunday, on these days leading up to Passover, I pray that this week, God, we could just walk through that story with your son, walk through those promises with you. And we thank you, God, that because of your promise, we can have peace. Because of your son and his death, we can have a payment for our sins and that we have been provided life, God, so that we would not have to die. 
And God, I pray that right now, as we move to the communion table, we would feel your presence in our lives and know that no matter how dark it is today, we will have light tomorrow because the death of Jesus on our behalf. We thank you for that. And we come to worship you in this moment of communion together. And thank you, thank you for your son, his life, death, and resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray.